You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Art is what makes this world beautiful. Art, whether it's a painting, a film, a portrait, a sculpture, a drawing, a poem, a song, it brings beauty into our world. And today I'm really excited to be able to talk to Buddy Waitfield, an actor, writer, producer, and three-time world champion spoken word artist. He is one of my absolute favorite poets and I think one of the most, if not the most, significant American poet of our modern era. He's been featured on BBC, HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam, ABC Radio National. In 2004, he won the first individual World Poetry Slam finals, and then he went on next year to defend his title and win again. Um, Buddy has been all over the world sharing his art from Amsterdam to Spain to Singapore to Zimbabwe. He was the inaugural author released on Right, Buddy, right Bloody Publishing and an original board of directors member with Youth Speak Seattle. He's been published in dozens of books internationally with work used to win multiple national collegiate debate and forensic competitions. His first short film, Farmly, directed by Jamie DeWolf, won Best of Texas at the Literally Short Film Festival and the USA Film Festival. Buddy has an air of calm about him and a really unique way of presenting his art to the world. That uniqueness comes off in our conversation that we had with Buddy uh, today. If you haven't heard of him, check out his work, listen to a piece, and then come back to this conversation. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Well, Sanger, if that is your name. That's what they call me. Okay. Welcome. Welcome to my show. Thank you. I, I, uh, I, I suppose you have a list of questions for me. I do. I have a list of questions for you. The first person you would murder. Sorry, most people go for superpower. <laughs> well, I had a longer list than I thought when you asked. <laughs> oh, probably. Your star crush. My star Your crush. Your superpower. Uh, Julie Andrews. Um, celebrity crush. Julie Andrews, first person I'd murder. And superpower to look like Julie Andrews. Wait a minute, Sanger. Are you gay? No, just a big fan. <laughs> Isn't Julie Andrews like a? She was in a. Isn't she a gay icon? I don't know. I don't ask so many what questions. What does she do? What does she? What does she do? What she? What's her? Uh, remind me what she's in. Um, what Mary Poppins? Okay, yeah, she's. She, she's a music. She's if it's. Yeah. Um, okay. I don't know how you don't know that. Because I'm really bad at being gay. <laughs> I'm, I'm the least likely to know any sort of show tune situation. Yeah, no no Lady Gaga songs either. Huh? None. No. Oh, yeah, yeah. A poker face, for sure. All right, that's a good one. And I saw her halftime show. All right. I mean, I'm not the authority on, on gayness, but I I feel like that gets you Okay, in. well, I'm... The Julie Andrews situation was questionable, but okay. <laughs> That's, I wish I could say it was the first time I've been questioned. 
I'm I'm more of a Trent Reznor fellow. So. How did you end up in Portugal? Hmm. Well, God, that's a really a safe place for a big change. I think by accident, not accident. You know, here's the deal. Something in my some some voice back in the layers was just looking out for me. Uh, in my own way of being, my best friend moved here with his wife and kids. The one of my one of my closest friends, and uh, and told the rest of us about his dream to move his family out here and for all of his friends to have a place to come if they wanted to, and we could get old and retire and uh, in a in a in a beautiful place where the cost of living is right and the pace is good and there's three hour lunches and it's safe, really safe, and and that's something I haven't experienced a lot of in this life. So usually when you tell me the word safe, I'm all in. And uh, um, and I am the least tied to things in terms of a partner or uh, responsibilities, and I can work from anywhere. I mean, I can't act in LA here, so that's a that's a thing that that's why I've kept us my my place in LA for now and subletting it. But otherwise, I just wanted to keep the momentum going for this great idea he had of us, all of us being in Porto, Portugal, because when I was in my 20s, I dreamed up this tiny home situation before tiny homes blew up. Every time I have an invention, Sanger, if I say anything out loud, the whole world finds out about it. And I just can't stand it. Next time, just email Starting it to me this- and we'll work on it privately. Okay. Starting with the cereal bar. I had a dream of opening a cereal bar. Now, anyways, so I had this dream of having this little tiny home community before tiny homes were even a thing. And, but it was like, a, it was eight little houses. And then there was a big octagon house in the middle. I've always been slightly obsessed with cephalopods anyways. And have we started the show oh, yet? Oh, yeah. Okay. I, okay, good. Good. Then there's no elongated weird intro. <laughs> so I can keep talking. Yeah, good? you're good. Okay, cool. And so in the middle of these eight tiny homes was going to be a big octagon house where everyone came together for, you know, Sunday meals and poker night and whatever, what have yous, whatever have yous. And, uh, and so John, my buddy who moved here, just sort of got a jump start on the reality of actually all, well, in, in those, sorry, in those tiny homes, we're going to be all of my closest friends. So we could all get old together and do our thing. And, uh, and him moving here and having his little dream seemed more realistic to, to act on. So that's why I'm in Porto. Keeping the momentum going for a group of friends 30 years old and or 30 years long and uh, who are absolutely in love with each other and have, yeah, uh, have had incredible lives together and just want to keep it going. That's amazing. How long have you guys been doing that? Been doing? Been living, how, like, so when did you move? This was a couple years ago. Oh. Or? No, this is really all. This is all new. Um, I've been here nine months. Today, I today I've moved. This is my old place that I'm sitting in. I just moved to my new place today. I came here for make sure the wireless was dependable, but um, we're still all. Yeah, he's got a new home here, and I'm still working on residency, and I'm nine months in. I, I imagine Intensive you would have to be. Start next week. 
you would have to be really detached to live a life as a traveling poet. You would have to be detached from many things. Mm. You're telling me. I can only imagine. I mean, it's, been an, it's been an enviable career in terms of poetry paid for me to see the world, but it has been, uh, there has been a large detachment and, you know, like friends getting married and families and everything whizzing by while this very strange reality was unfolding before me. And now, back to the safety, just looking to stay still and play it safe. Yeah. It has been a vulnerable existence. How much of that were you aware? How much of that lifestyle were you aware of when you decided that that's what you wanted to do? You, you know, I've, I've, I would imagine at some point you chose, okay, I'm going to leave a, the normal nine to five life and, and, and make writing full time my career. That had to have been a big leap. You make it sound so professional. Well, I'm wearing a suit, buddy. Like a practical thinker made these decisions. Yeah. I, I wasn't expecting them to have a practical answer. There, there's, there was no, that, 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 that boy was not practical. I was working as the executive assistant at a biomedical firm in Gig Harbor, Washington. The guy I was working for was really dishonest in 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 the sickest of ways uh, in terms of stealing gobs of money from great people. I'd sort of, I, I just couldn't do it. I let the people know and, uh, and then was, um, my my best buddy from college, uh, his uh, dad owned a casino nearby, and so I thought, well, maybe I'll just be a dealer, and uh, and at that it was sort of the start when when I was having some success on stage with poetry, and I knew I had something, and so I just said f it, and I moved into a car for two years, and uh, two years and four months, and traveled poetry venues. Did the math? Was doing all right, not having to pay rent and making like I was. I was doing you know much better than the minimum wage, or I was doing all right for myself. And uh, one thing just kept leading to another, and I don't think I was ever. I just was, was continually playing into my highest excitement with zero expectations of the outcome. It seems like the people who who achieve true success all have a similar story. It may not always be as dramatic as I lived in a car for two years, but I don't see a whole lot of people that get into something for the money and then have it work out really well for themselves. A lot of people get into something because it's their passion and then the whatever other rewards of success come later. Yeah, exactly. And there, that, that's been the blessing and the curse is the passion part. I had a, actually was just thinking about this recently. I had a I had a show in San Luis Obispo years ago. This is like a, I don't know. This is like twelve years ago, and I wanted nothing more to do with passion. I was at a meditation center, and the guy the Vipassana center in SN Goenka said something about like he was talking about not generating craving and aversion. And he was naming all of these things that people can gen generally relate to being averse to. 
And within all of these things he was listing, he was listing passion. Don't generate any passion right now. And passion has always been presented to us in this narrative as this amazing thing you must have. And it resonated so deeply that it was a thing I did not must have anymore. <laughs> that, that, it was, uh, that it was causing just as much unsavory as it was savory. And um, so, yeah, the passion definitely drove me to it. And it's also the thing that's driven me to settle away from it. <laughs> I'm so much more interested in stability and routine at this point. How much of that do you think is because you've, you haven't had those things for so long? The stability and mm -hmm. routine? How much of it? Oh. Well, a lot of it. Um, so I talk to people every, greener, right? I talk to people about their money, right? That's how I make a living is to help people make decisions about their money. And yeah. Oh, let's talk oh, about that well, singer. Because <laughs> I'm in a place where I would like to make some now. I've been a poet for 20 years. Well, I, what, what I've found in, in my journey in, in this career is that the people who make the best decisions with their money understand what they're seeking to to get out of life on a fundamental emotional level first they have to understand that first and sometimes they'll say things like i want safety or i want stability like you've said that's what i want more than i want a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars or a brand new house or i want to buy a boat no it's not those things it's i want this feeling and if we can understand what is the feeling that we want first, then everything else in life is just a tool to help us get that. And money is all it is, is a tool. It's, it's some numbers and some commas, hopefully. And we can apply that to achieve safety, to achieve stability. Or, or maybe it's to achieve, for some people, it's to achieve status. For some people, it's to, to, to achieve a feeling of freedom which is a lot different than a feeling of safety. But I've found the people who can decide on that feeling first before they start to take action to, to move forward end up at a place they're a lot happier with. And what's interesting, when you talk about passion, I've found that positive emotions can be just as, just as detracting from that aim as any negative emotion. And so I would often tell clients like, yeah, you know, excitement is good, but we can make really bad decisions when we're excited, just like we can make really bad decisions when we're afraid. And I've never heard someone say passion could have a negative, you know, a negative outcome or a negative side effect. I think that it makes all the sense hearing you say it. I've, I'm usually, yeah. I usually get called passionate about what I do. And I've always liked that. So what do you, what what did you find when 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 he spoke that to you and said, "Hey, it's something that you don't have to have." How did that thought process relief. go? How did you realize that? Well, it's relief, you know. Um, anytime that there's a witness, <clears throat> anytime I feel witness, there's a relief. Um, I think it's what I provide, you know. Witnessing someone or being witnessed is fundamental to the infrastructure of healing. And that's why movies and 
uh, music and writing and poetry and all of it is an art, visual or otherwise. It's just a, a, a way of witnessing. And um, when someone feels witnessed, there's a, there's a healing that begins to take place. I mean, that's how all the uprising in the U.S. is happening right now, is people are finally being witnessed for who they are. And, um, and so when I heard passion not being promoted and instead being checked, I felt witnessed in a feeling that I had been having for a long time. And, uh, and it was the nicest way of being told to settle down, (laughs) (laughs) to calm, to calm down this energy engine that has run me off the road and out of the guardrails for, for so long. I mean, there are minimal guardrails as a poet for a living. I'm kind of required to try everything. <laughs> required because it's not, no one's going to pay you $100,000 a year to salary to write. Yeah. 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 I, it's, and no one, no one did. I, I worked, I, I made that happen a couple times on my own drive. Sure. Um, yeah, but no one's hiring a poet on a uh, zip recruiter right now. Right. Yeah. No, that, that, that's something that I always respected about the people that who I knew that that went into not just poetry but other careers where you know there were a lot of voices saying, "Hey, how are you gonna how are you gonna make that work? How are you gonna make a living? How how is this gonna happen for someone that's going to be a poet?" I had, um, actually, I met you. Not that you would remember this interaction at all. It was a very brief moment. You were performing in Houston. I want to say like 2017 and I had driven a couple of hours because a woman that I had known for many years named Natasha Carrizosa was also performing on that same stage. And I had respected her so much because she had done a lot for poetry in the, in the community that I live in here in Fort Worth and in Arlington. And she moved away and she had lived in Houston for like five years and still every week would drive up to host her weekly open mic at this Jamaican restaurant in Arlington. She'd drive five hours both ways to make that happen. And it, it, Wait, is this, is this with Michael Gwynn and Janine Livingston? She, so those, she, uh, they, they were in Fort Worth, right? Um, Janine was in Fort Worth and Michael Gwynn was in Fort Worth. Um, Natasha hosted a separate thing from what they had done, but I used to go to that one all the time too. I was at the separate thing. No, no, this was in Houston. So she had like she was kind of doing well, two I'm, of oh, these yeah, okay. different things. So gotcha. I don't remember the name of the place. Um, I, I wish I I wish I knew the name and I could. Was it? It was it like a? It's like an outdoor um, venue, and and you had this crowd of people who clearly had known you from since high like, yeah high school. Yeah, I went to because I grew up in Baytown. Yeah, yeah. There was a whole crowd um, of them. Yeah, that I'm going to let you finish your story and then I'm going to tell you what was happening. Oh, I would love because I've wondered for years. I remember seeing that moment on stage when they like showed up. <laughs> well, it, it, it was it was a nightmare for me, but I don't want to interrupt. I think you were headed somewhere. Uh, Houston. Oh, when we crossed paths originally. Oh, yeah. So so I I I really was 
have been drawn. I think a lot of people who have, you know, quote unquote, normal jobs or careers like me, um, we get kind of beaten down by the, the, the routine and the stability of it, I guess it's the off it's the inversion of a life of a poet in some ways like hey you know i'm not being creative at all but i've also got all the stability and routine that i could ask for um i anyway i was so drawn to her work and and your work that i drove down there just to just to be in that moment and and i remember that she had i think she drove that she thought i drove there for her um i love her (laughs) She's wonderful. But she gave me like a five minute intro. She saw me in the back of the crowd and like talked about me for I'm not I don't deserve the spotlight in this moment at all. Everyone else is there to see you guys perform. And you said you were standing behind me this whole time. I had no idea. And she gets kind of at the end of her big, long soliloquy about me. And she gets to the end of it. And the crowd just gives nothing in return. No one cared. Of course, no one's there for me. And it just Uh is so awkwardly silent. And I hear this. What awful thing did I say? You just said, Sanger. Yes. (laughs) Thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then I, I bought, I bought your book and you signed it and you wrote Sanger. Thank goodness. And that is like my, one of my most prized possessions. Because it was just such a, it felt such like a Buddy Wakefield thing to say. Not that I've known you personally in any way, but your work resonates this, this odd sense of calm. Even, even poems that aren't calm or and aren't about being calm. But there's like this weird intention yeah. of landing. It came in high school. My intention fundamentally came in high school. Uh, very straight up from from doing from starting drugs early and doing acid and laying in bed. I never was the social like you know. Uh, well, I'll keep it simple. I was just I would hallucinogens were the first thing I ever tried before alcohol or anything, and so I would just remember thinking that I would I would only like to be alone at a certain point because I really liked exploring my mind and listening to music. And I only wanted to listen to music, no matter how dark it got. I only wanted to listen to it if I knew that they were going to land me in a purposeful place. Like I couldn't just listen to like Slayer. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I needed it to, I needed them to be going somewhere that was going to, where there was some clear writing on the wall at the end of it. And so fundamentally that took hold really early in my writing where I knew I had to process a lot of dark and heavy things. And I also knew I didn't want to leave that on my audience's shoulders or my own. And um, so, yeah, there was real intention uh, there. Um, What does it look like to leave it on the audience's shoulder? Oh, it's embarrassing. Uh, Leave, oof. Leaving it on the audience's shoulders for me means... Uh, you know, like I saw a woman do a rape poem at a bar one time and it's just not the place to do it. It's a bad choice. You know, when there's people, not everybody there is there to see poetry that day yeah. and it's a bar with people in the back and you can't expect. Uh, 
some things you just shouldn't give an audience. Okay. <laughs> in certain situations. And, and, and it's that, it's that feeling. I watched people in the back of the bar get really uncomfortable. And while I had every, you know, bit of compassion for the woman, she was choosing to leave that on people, unsuspecting people's shoulders. And so I just, uh, I've always, I just always read the room. <laughs> does that answer the question? It, it kind of does. I, I, I understand a little bit. Um, when I get, I don't think what you're saying is that you have to completely work through everything that you ever want to write or share before yeah. you share it or write it. Or is that what you're saying? Some some there's poets just such, will. There's just such an intention. There's just such an intention for me to leave clear writing on the wall to to for people to uh, land in a better place than where it started. Um, and I just don't want them leaving the room heavier than they came in. And um, uh, so it is intentional that first and right now is a great yeah. example because i love being a writer so i can edit myself because when i speak i'm so fallible i'm like my mother i can miss the I, I can completely wander off the point and never come back to it completely forget the question but in writing i'm not leaving until i get what i'm going for and and i've proven that with i mean in everything i've written horsehead for example took four months and I worked at like a nine to five, I'm sorry, three months. I worked at like a nine to five job and it's a four minute long piece. So, and this is why, you know, in 20 years, there's only been uh, three albums and four books or four or five, five books instead of, you know, I don't want at the end of my career, I don't want um, to have 20 albums with one or two good songs in each one. I want everyone from front sure. to back to have been, to deliver exactly what I was going for. And so when I'm, when I'm with an audience, I know exactly what I'm leaving them with. And, um, it's not, <clears throat> it's not extemporaneous or stream of consciousness or, you know, something unedited that I hope lands. Yeah. The, that does, that's a conscious decision. It would seem like at, at every point throughout the process, you know, it, yeah. there's something that I, I, I get a lot from, from hearing your work and it's this, overwhelming feeling that every word was carefully crafted and on purpose. And there's a lot of good writing and good music, uh, good poetry. It doesn't feel that way exactly. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that just to applaud you in any way, although I think it is a, it's a compliment in some way, but, but that's you. a, how do you continue to, to make that a present focus for you? when when you're going through that writing process well i'm, I'm <laughs> or is that just I'm, how you are i'm pretty scared of my own editing process at this point i'm i'm uh there's such a standard and a demand of myself and um you know like i it used to just be a channel it used to just be intuitive and then i would go through and tweak i i've finally gotten to a point where i can actually teach it i have criteria that i have excuse me What's, um, you know, there's my baseline writing. The first time I sit down, you don't have to be brilliant. Every time you show up, you just have to show up. And so when I just show up and I get stuff down on paper and then I'm panning for gold and looking for what resonates and what I want to keep. And then I'm applying these five criteria to it. And then I'm, and then I'm combing through, I mean, there's a, there's a prop. And then there's, you know, I have to pay attention to every detail. There's the rhythm. There's the, 
it's right down to the small words at the if yeah. and it's all of those that that I I would develop I would place every every word so that the rhythm continually makes the most sense and and that the meaning makes the most sense and the logic checks out the most even if it's just a little bit more and if it's a decision and it's always the decision that's more exciting uh, I heard a guy named Jack Plotnick say one time that the universe always rewards a joyful risk. And so in the writing, when, when two things sort of seem parallel or aligned, like my choices, it's always going to be the one that's a little bit riskier. It's always going to be the word um, that I made up. The, you'll, you'll go with the risk instead of the safe yeah, option. Instead of the, what could, what could find itself nestling into a cliche? Yeah. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to throw a horse at it. I'm going to break a glass over whatever it is his head. And then we're going to get to the bottom of it. So, and we're not going to dawdle around on the beach with lovers and starfish. Yeah. And too, many, too many moons. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna use all those things as a doorway. And then we're going to find out what's behind them. And we're going to take it on tour and make them better people. How do you balance that with, with this intentionality? Right? Because on one hand, it sounds like what you're saying is, I want it to be very, very clear to the audience and to the listener exactly what to take away from this. And then on the other hand, I'm going to risk that they don't, or I'm going to risk yeah. that risk being misinterpreted. <laughs> and, and, and I have been, I would, I would imagine that you have been a lot. You're because, but, but yeah. for that reason, right? Your, your, your poetry isn't roses are red, violets are blue. It's not, it's yeah. not really that easy. <laughs> to understand sometimes. Well, I dem I expect my audience to meet me halfway. Yeah. I want a smart audience. So first of all, baseline, they're going to have to, uh, some of it's going to wash over them. They're going to have to read it a second and third time. Yeah. Um, but I'm not just saying, I'm not just saying stuff to sound cool. Logically, it's going to check out. The image is going to check out with the feeling that used to carry different words with it. And whether consciously or unconsciously, they know that, that something legit is happening like hurling crow birds at mocking bars when uh, I say I that I smashed a beehive against the ocean to try and make our splash last longer. Remember all the honey had me looking like a jellyfish ape, but you walked off the water in a porcupine of light. Strands of gold drizzled out to the tips of your wasp. This is an apology letter to the both of us for how long it took me to let things go. So there's there's all this abstraction that it's bookend, bookended with very yeah. definite statements. And so in between, I'm allowed... I'm allowed that movement and that color that keeps a mind excited. And it's just, all that was just to say, you know, this is an apology letter to the both of us for how long it took me to let things go. I was just trying to make our, you know, just trying to make our splash last longer. And uh, that's it. But uh, I, I think there's a, there's a, there's something, I almost said the word invigorating, which is a little too much like a shampoo, but there's, <laughs> This, that's how the editing process, exhibit A of the editing process. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's it. You have to steer me back into when I miss the points, Sanger. Because this I, is the this, this is the lot. least committed I've been off. to the agenda of the show ever, and I knew that before <laughs> I turned this on today. I knew that it was going to yeah. be this way, and that's okay. I think okay, great. they're, uh, that's, it's fascinating to hear that because, um, I, I don't know. I don't remember even who this was. I want to say 
um i want to say it was it was one of the one of the ladies that that works on our team here i showed her um i showed her that video that of of hurling crowberts at marking bars i said man you gotta watch this. this is really good and her first response was it was i'm not exactly sure what it was but i knew it was important and then she listened again <laughs> she goes man there's something about how that was brought to me that i knew i needed to listen and so i'll go listen again and again and again and i think that that's you know i'm no i'm no writer but that has to be that's got to be the some in some way the goal is that if you understand or at least that's what i'm hearing if you can understand everything that was put into this the first time it's presented to you it can't be that well crafted or am i missing the point well i i'm not sure i want to see mission accomplished regarding the woman watching the piece and i, I can i can see her i can see her watching it and having the reaction that you just said and it feels like mission accomplished to me because it's just exciting that she knew something important was happening and she's figuring out a new way to to hear um, on a metaphysical level that gets me excited. And so I think I lost you after that because <laughs> <laughs> I was excited about that. I, I guess that what I'm what what I was saying is that that see, that seems like that's it's interesting to hear you say that that's an intentional outcome that you want to have happen, you yeah. know. Oh, okay, that part. <clears throat> so that would that would be claiming a little too much brilliance. There's there's a channel that happens. I'm sitting down and I know it, it's starting to take shape, and so I make more sense of what's taking shape. But sometimes, gosh, I've just never broken it down from this direction. There is an intentionality about everything, except that sometimes when I start writing, I don't know what it's going to be about. In fact, in Hurling Crowbirds at Mocking Bars, there's a line that says, I cut trombones from the moment you walk that is, away. That is one of the best part. I love that part so much. Thank you. It was the first line to Horsehead years earlier. Yeah. I ne it never even made it into Horsehead because of the editing process. All I knew was that I needed a poem that's, that, that had that line in it. I don't even remember where the line came from. I just knew I was walking around one day in Venice Beach and I cut trombones from the moment you walked away. And and then I spent three months on Horsehead and it never ended up in the poem. And then somehow out of nowhere when I was writing Hurling Crovers at Mocking Bars, there it was. Um, so the intentionality is not there in the sense that when I start writing sometimes, all I know is I'm living to my highest excitement. I know that this line has me excited. I know that I'm ready to write. I know that I'm. Um, this is what I do. This is what excites me. I know it's gonna be good because I've got that good feeling inside yeah. me and I know I'm about to deliver something powerful. And that's when, I, that's when I refuse to leave until I do. So in terms of intentionality, <clears throat> I can't claim that it's always there in the beginning. Sometimes it is. But generally, it's it's uh, it's coming from that energy engine, that passion, where I just know I have to. I you know what? It's I. There was a time. It's not as much anymore, but there was a time when I had to, and I can best explain it. Uh, I was in Alaska on tour with uh, Derek Brown and Anis Mojgani, and 
we had one of the best days of our lives. And, and one of the things we did that day was go mushing the, the dog sleds. And, and when we walked out back, I was, uh, well, first I, I was so worried about these dogs. Like, God, it's, it's freezing. I don't want to make these dogs pull me around. <laughs> you were worried about the Why dogs and not. Yeah. It's like the, it's like the rodeo. Like those bulls do not want to be spurred, man. <laughs> you can, I know it's tradition. <laughs> Yeah, but they don't want to be spurred. That's they're they're trying to get you off of their back yes. for a reason because they don't want you to be yes. there. And so I was worried about the dogs. And we got out there, and man, Sanger, these things go crazy. They have to mush. They have to pull that sled. It's all they want to do. By the way, they can shit while they're doing that. While they're running. <laughs> yeah, because I was in the sled at one point. <laughs> And I was dodging bullets. <laughs> yeah, that seems like that should have been in the uh, in the uh, in the waiver form you signed. Yeah. You might really get should've. shit on, by the way. <laughs> you might take a pellet. Um, but I just remember they had to do that, and I was like, "Oh, we're going mushing!" Like there was once I knew that they were in it, I was in it completely, and that's how I felt for so long about writing. I just had to. I knew something was happening. I knew spiritually something was happening because I've been clawing into spirit world for so long. I mean, I was, I was, I was driven to it. I, I hated the fact that I was gay. I hated it so much. I was really trying to, I was, I mean, I was diligently praying and switching religion. I was doing, I was seeking my whole life just to, you know, like when God hates you, you're screwed. <laughs> and from every angle, I just knew that God hated me because of what I was. And here's the thing. I really wanted to be down with God, the creator of everything, right? So I'm trying to find my way to this guy. And it's not possible when you're gay. I mean, it's it, it's it, from every angle. People I love, the, the heroes I depended on for information. You know, I'm pretty, I, I'm still pretty sure if I hadn't been born gay, I'd be a douche. So I'm glad I was. <laughs> So I'm glad I was I'm glad I was driven away from the bad information that I was getting. Um, but it was painful. It was dark. It was suicidal for not just like a moment, but for decades, you know, until meta until I. Well, until I discovered the moment, until I discovered the moment, Hugh Prather, Benjamin Hawk. All of a sudden, in college, marijuana. <laughs> All of a sudden, these things were these things were showing me right now, and not some hell I was going to be in, or some hell from which I came, but right now where the judgment stopped, and kindness was allowed in for myself, and a certain surrender began to happen, and when the judgments weren't there, there was a relief that was immeasurable. And I had not known these things. So that's what got introduced into the writing pretty early on is that despite my, you know, I took a lot longer to mature than my peers. And I think that's still the situation, but I, I, I did know my ideal self. I have always known my ideal self. I just haven't always been able to execute it anywhere other than writing. And so I think that's why the writing became so much, so successful at a younger age despite wherever I was actually at in my life. 
the ideal self, I think that concept is really important to achieve significance in, in any field, in any way. Um, I'll work with my clients on that as well and say, okay, close your eyes. Think of, think of that ideal buddy. And you know everything about that ideal self. You know what they, you know how he dresses, how he talks, what he's eating for dinner tonight, whether he worked out this morning, what time he woke up. You know everything about him. And the problem is for most of us, we're nowhere near that person. We're not that person at all 99% of the time. But the only chance that we have to reach that ideal self is to, to have that picture. And, and I think so many people exist through life with a foggy, like, you know, crayon drawn chicken scratch image of their ideal self. And it just looms over them. And, and that's, what, that's where they feel that judgment is they feel judgment from from something that they can't even articulate. They All they know is that they're not living up to their ideal self, but they couldn't even really speak that self into existence. So they just anxiety, just oh, attention, just everything is bad. And there are a lot of things that cause those feelings, but I think that's such a big one is, you know, I used to, I used to have, before I kind of really understood my own ideal self, I would feel worthless no matter what I was doing. It, it didn't matter if I was, I could receive a lot of praise from my peers. I could be, you know, really, really like accepted into a group and I would still feel like everyone hated me. Or I could be professionally successful, um, you know, achieve my business goals. And yet I would still feel like I'm a loser. Like I'm worthless in this career. I'm not even good at being at, at this job. And it, and it followed me everywhere until I painted it and said, okay, well, that's what it is. That's really what it is. And it's not necessarily motivated by the things that he, you know, and her and well, all insane. these people want. It's beautiful. It's beautiful what you just said. It followed me everywhere I went. So I painted it down and it's, uh, it's looking directly at something. In fact, it's, uh, it's something the first time I noticed how Effective it is to just look directly at something is with shame. Shame yeah. has such this massive, this massive reputation. I mean, there's there's this huge bully named shame, and he's just that an ineffectual childhood bully. When one looks at shame, literally looks at shame, whatever it is you're feeling shame about, it dissolves so quickly. It wants nothing to do with being seen. It just wants to loom. And I think it's brilliant for you to say that. It was following me everywhere, so I painted Yeah, I like that. I like the idea that, you know, characterizing it as a bully. You know, bullies don't even, yeah, and they don't want to be called out and they don't want you to face them or stand up. And that's what shame, that's what shame is. And they condense. And, and I'm speaking in a scientific yeah. matter, manner. They condense. Like, for example, um, Anger is just millions and billions of little sadnesses condensed. Hate is just the same thing of anger. And, you know, I've been meditating since 2005. Um, at least once a year, I'll, except until COVID, I would go to uh, a Vipassana center and get reestablished in the mm -hmm. technique every year. For, and there's no idol worship or guru or rites or rituals. It's just this, you know, scientific observation of breath and sensations without reacting to come out of habit patterns and blind reactions and and that's when i was able to start seeing all of these things scientifically that it, that it's 
one thing le- the one thing leading to another. Like earlier, I said witnessing is fundamental to to healing, and similarly, um, serendipity is actually in, is fundamental to the infrastructure of consciousness. It's it's literally the the logical next thing that happens after presence. When one becomes present, the higher power actually starts to do its work. You know, and that higher power for people who roll their eyes, like I would at a certain point have to be comfortable with realizing that their higher power might actually be their ideal self. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't need to be this, you know, separate God way off in the sky sitting in a, you know, sending and receiving prayer requests, you know, like Santa. It's, but it's, it's, it's actually a higher power. If you don't have one and you're listening to this, just consider your higher power, your ideal self that where you're actually happy and not in constant state of suffering, misery, or, criticizing or being skeptical or rolling your eyes, but just your higher power. Yeah. The, the, the danger in rejecting all ideas of faith or, or any religion or any spirituality is that the, you're left with no, I no higher power at all. And, and the, I think that that we can't exist that way. We can't exist with nothing above ourself. Mm. Um, but so many people do, and that must've been really tempting for you as you went through life in your younger years and said, Oh my gosh, I feel unwelcome, you know, in the community in, in, that I'm born in or wherever it was. I dodged that. I did. Uh, I knew, I always knew something. I always knew there was an emanating energy that I was connected to. And I don't think I ever had to, I don't think I ever, I, mean, I definitely was bummed about the, like the, this, the general white guy in the sky who was not answering my prayers. But I did know that there was an energy and that was my escape route when I started. If that makes sense. When I just started realizing it's all, there's a point of connection in everything, no matter how, no matter how far apart things seem. And that ultimately we are all one and it's not just a Bob Marley song and you're me and I'm you and now is all that ever was or will be and we're on a continuum and there is no past or future. And when all that stuff starts to come into play, in fact, do you know what the most, I might be sidetracking, but Arrival, have you seen the movie Arrival? I can't get enough what, of it. What is that it's about? Amy oh Adams yeah, with the alien and, movie. Uh, Jeremy Renner. This movie does the most incredible things around how the continuum is actually playing out and the and communication neurologically and otherwise it and so i did go way far out didn't i so energetically i just always knew that there was that there were phases and planes of existence happening i just didn't have access because i was probably too desperate seeking that out seeking that wisdom out that you yeah. didn't earn yeah. um, or just trying to peg it through writing and feelings yeah. as opposed to having the actual experience you know that which is theory can be disproven but that which is um experiential can only be disbelieved and at a certain point such as with serendipity things began to pour in so consistently on a daily basis and become so experiential. And I began talking to people around me about serendipity as this factual thing that was happening on a daily basis. And I realized, oh, I'm just being disbelieved. But I was in such a sustainably joyful place. Didn't matter. 
Now, here's where things get, here's where the plot twist happens is that you would think when a fella sees the light, he runs to it and uh, can't say that that's what's always happened. I think I'm a sucker for this world and some of the, some of the uh, instant gratifications and the materials. And so I, there was a point when I felt like I was in that Eckhart Tolle bliss and uh, I was there for quite a long time. And uh, at one point, at one point I ate a double cheeseburger. I think that's when it started again when I was going away from the The light. double cheeseburgers <laughs> will bring you back to sin real quick. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was a double cheeseburger that brought me back to hell. <laughs> well, <laughs> the double cheeseburgers at Waterburger are uh, are a one-way ticket to heaven, I'm pretty sure. So it must have been somewhere else. There's so much story and context behind that cheeseburger, but I'm, we're just going to Oh, I'm, I would I now I really want to know. No, no, cuz then we get into really bad decisions and this is about <laughs> this podcast is very clear in its objectives <laughs> to make good decisions. That's funny. I speaking of, of cheeseburgers and Whataburger, do you remember the name of that um of that boy from Houston? Boy, he's older than me. Man from Houston that wrote the Whataburger poem. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. I wish I knew his name. <clears throat> Amir Safi? No. Oh no, no. Yes, I can find out for you very easily. I think it is Amir. It's Amir. I think you're really close. It's Amir Safi. A-M-I-R-S-A-F-I. And if it's not, tell me and I will make sure and find that out for you. Which brings us back to that Houston show because he hosted yes, that night. Yes, yes. And so I'm there. There's, you know, friends since junior high are showing up to see what I do because they've, because at a certain point I was definitely, yeah, yeah, they knew something was happening with my career and my life that was, wasn't normal and rolling with, yeah, anyways, I'm wanting to kill it. I'm wanting to throw it out of the park. I'm all, you know, it was, it was humid. It was Texas uh -huh. sticky outside that night. It was, I had hired a gospel singer. I had written a new piece called Farmly, which we ended up doing a short story about. It's, it's, it stars everyone in my family. It's about my family. It's really heavy. It ended up winning the USA Film Fest for short film. You can see it on YouTube. It's called Farmly. Uh, and <laughs> I was doing it that night for one of the first times. And I had a guy playing keys. I don't, and I don't think his keys were weighted. I think it was like a. I don't. It, and and then I. I don't know enough singer. about music to know what that means. Uh, his keys weren't weighted, meaning like it couldn't sound like a regular piano, but it was more like a Casio. Uh, okay. The, it was yeah. just plastic keys. And um, they were both incredibly nice, but here's what happened. <laughs> I did that. So my friends were walking in, some of them were late, some of them were there. It's already sort of a strange, it's a new vibe for me. I might not have been entirely on. In fact, I know I wasn't. And, and it's such a vulnerable experience. And the three worst times to perform are when I'm tired, uh, sleep deprived, small crowds, and people I know. And I was nailing all of those <laughs> things. 
And so I do Farmley. I'm a couple pieces in. I'm doing Farmley. And it's this intense piece about my family. And, uh, and at the end, this gospel singer is supposed to take us off into Midnight Train to Georgia. And, uh, and we're supposed to start riffing. And I had talked to her for five minutes upstairs, telling her these cues and what was up. And she was just agreeing and nodding her head. Sanger, I have zero idea what forces were working with her between the time we talked and the time <laughs> stage happened. But I don't know if you remember, but she started going. When I was done, she looked at me and then she was at her mic and started singing, Buddy Wakefield is the, is the greatest. Buddy Wakefield is the greatest. The greatest. I was mortified. I think even if I was a narcissist, I would have been mortified. She's landed on pretty thick. I, I, so then there's this, there's this dilemma. Like, do I just disrespect her and go stop her from singing and tell my crowd, listen, I did not ask her to sing Buddy Wakefield is the greatest. <laughs> please, please know that. In, in, in any other situation in my life, this would, the humor would take the front seat and I would just be able to tell the crowd, look, I would have just been riffing on how atrocious that was. Yeah. And, uh, but I think I was literally so mortified and agitated that I couldn't get my comedy together enough to find a non-offensive way to tell her that was the <laughs> shittiest thing she could have possibly done <laughs> in front of everybody. God, I was mortified, and I couldn't get it back together. I, I remember I remember pulling it. Even at my worst, I know I'm pulling something off, and I know that at least the words are speaking, even if my presence is, is, is dampened. And that saves me often. Uh, you know, you just want to nail it in front of your family and friends. And they were all so forgiving and loving, and they, half of them They don't even didn't, know. You know, was that when I was making my little artistic justifications and excuses after the show, like, oh, God, I was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> They were like, no, they, none of them. They were just so happy to see me do whatever the hell it is I was doing. Cause in Baytown, Texas, you know, it's, it's not hard to explain up to people who are in the city. Let alone, yeah. you know, what, what I do is not a, a normal thing to explain, but something else that's beautiful real quick about that night is that, and I just hung out with her online on, on Sunday is that Ebony Stewart is also a world champion slam poet from Baytown. And it's, it feels like a very rare thing indeed that two people grew up so close to each other in Baytown, Texas, both ended up making careers yeah. out of poetry slam, which is a, not normal. Yeah, the odds are really and low. And we didn't know each other. Like, we, weren't, we weren't pulling each other up. We didn't know each other because she was so much younger. And then we ended up touring together um, toward the end there. And she's the greatest <clears throat> opening act I've ever had. Like I could, I just felt so stinking safe. She was undeniable on stage. She commands a room and she commands presence, whether she's a poet or not or not. And so, and it and just felt like homegirl. It was just great. It's awesome. How, how, yeah. How odd that is that, that both of you are from Baytown. There's hardly two yeah. well-known slam poets from Seattle, much less, <laughs> much less Baytown. <laughs> right. <laughs> Incredible. Did you call your mom today? No, I haven't. Oh, we should call her. Do we? It's my mom's birthday. 
She's 68. And I know that you're floored by that because I look 68. But that's because of 20 years of touring and the bad choices. (laughs) Those are all the bad decisions. Yeah. (laughs) Those are the bad decisions. But mom is uh, near Houston in uh, Friendswood, Pearland. She's in Pearland now. She has no idea if we call her. Like this, you just have to be prepared, singer. This is perfect. <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen <laughs> in a number of ways. We don't know what's going to happen. Okay, and something I do know is that she went and had margaritas with her girlfriends earlier. Oh, this is no. This is exactly what I exactly how I hoped this would go. Okay, so it's 10 p.m. here in Portugal. What time? In Texas, I think it's, it's four, three, yeah, four o'clock. It's four. Okay, let's so let's give mom a, a, a quick call. Okay. Now, do we can we do this through where you are at? Um, you mean like me call her, or you call? Yeah, for your audio purposes, do we need to? Do I just need to give you the number, uh, or shall I call her? I think if speaker? you just put it on speaker, it'll be perfect. Okay. What's her name? Teresa. Ter- Teresa? Without the first uh, Teresa. E, just Teresa. Uh-huh. Okay. And, um, I mean, anything could happen, singer. This is fantastic. You need to know this. Okay. Let's get this turned up here. Happy birthday, birthday to you. you. Happy birthday. Get it, singer. Happy birthday, dear mom. Happy birthday to you, you sweet old woman who's 60. <laughs> <laughs> okay mom just so you know we are on a podcast talking with singer in the podcast singer tell mom the name of this podcast hey, so we're we're on a podcast called decidedly where we talk all about defeating bad decision making so of course we needed your son on to to transport some wisdom <laughs> to our audience mom would you <laughs> well mom now i was a good kid would you say that I've yeah? Would you say that I've been fairly good, made fairly good decisions, or which side would you say I've leaned toward, good or bad decision making? It depends on which day of the week it is, whether or not okay. you're acting like your father or your mother. Uh-huh. <laughs> You're leaving considerable room for doubt for singers' viewers. <laughs> I think my mom would give the exact same answer, so I don't, I don't think you should feel bad. Okay, great. Mom, how's your birthday been so far? It has been wonderful. Thank you very much, and I'm so glad to hear from you. Did you, did you go have margaritas with the gals? I did. No, with my husband. Oh, I your did. husband. Okay. Well... I want you to know that I hope you have a very happy rest of your birthday. I'm sending you love. Sanger sending you love. And send your husband some love for me, too. 
Okay, I love you. I love you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <clears throat> All right, mister. Well, thank you so much. I'm sure it's your bedtime at this point. Well, I've got one more meeting. Because U.S. time, I'm eight hours ahead of y'all. See, this seems like so I've got one this more. seems like it's the this is the part of living in Portugal that might have prevented me from making that decision. It's worth you just it. wake up at every day at eleven a.m. or what? Today I did. <laughs> <laughs> so the the open mic that you're doing is um that's that's a really cool unique. Thing that yeah. I feel like a lot of, I mean, what a clever way to kind of stay engaged, especially not only just living across the ocean, but yeah, it's an, it's, a, it's an easy, it's an easy, uh, it's just an easy decision for me. It's, it, it keeps me connected to the, to what's, to what started me. Um, I got no expectations of it. You know, sometimes there's 30 people, sometimes there's yeah, it's it, well. It's usually around thirty people, and sometimes uh, thirty, and it's sometimes thirty-one. It's so weird because I can do a concert yeah, online, yeah. and hundreds of folks come, and I'm doing this open mic where anybody can come read and hang out, and you know, it's about thirty people showing up, and it's actually just perfect intimacy-wise. And I and I have special guests come out every week, surprise folks who are who are well-known spoken word artists, and they'll dip in and read a piece and get people going and. It's at, uh, it's at 11 a.m. Pacific time, so right around church time on the West Coast. Yeah. And, uh, and it's also uh, picked that time because it's where most of the world can take part, wherever you are, yeah. um, unless you're in Australia, and that's about 4 a.m. But it's called All the Lovers Left Alive. Yesterday, I thought it was the greatest title I ever, I ever well, not ever, because there's been some really good titles, sync, but I thought it was this great title I had, and it turns out Jim Jarmusch has something called only lovers left alive uh, anyways i've just found this out this but this open mic and it's all original name that i did not copy from anyone <laughs> it's called all the lovers left alive and uh you can come sing or do a poem or you got five minutes to do your thing and it's a it's a it's a safe loving place it's it's always going to be there uh anytime you just want that witness we spoke of and uh and to leave it all out there, yeah. I love that. BuddyWakefield.com. Uh, you can sign up for any Sunday, all Sundays. And I also spend time for people who are writers. Uh, the, the open mic lasts an hour and a half. And then afterwards, I uh, offer one-on-one uh, -on -one feedback if they want to send me a piece of writing before uh, the days before it starts. I'll spend quality time with that. And then um, there's one-on-one -on -one sessions after the open mic, usually about anywhere five to 10 people stay and I um, give uh, detailed feedback. I'll spend time with the piece and color coded feedback and break down the criteria that I spoke of earlier and, and really dive into writing with people who are interested. That's wonderful. The, the um, I, that's on my list to attend the open mic. One thing that I can vouch for personally is the, uh, the text that you send the, uh, yeah. Yes. Okay. Go sign up for those. If you're listening and you just want a little bit of a taste of Buddy Wakefield, the uh, the texts are amazing. <laughs> Thank you, man. I'm glad to know that you're on there. I have given those. Uh, I love doing them. I forget. I don't think I've promoted them in a year. <laughs> so y'all who have been on there have just been on there. And I don't 
I think people, it's good that you mentioned it because I never, I'm so bad at promoting. I'm so bad at the hustle now. And, but I love that you get those. I just actually got in trouble yesterday for one of my texts with a friend, uh, Andrea Gibson. Are you familiar with Andrea oh, Gibson? Of course, friend? yes. Andrea texted and said, Bud. <laughs> <laughs> You know you can't. You know that that text is just going to put resentment in people's day. I'm like, whoa! Well, that's, that's yeah, a that's bomb. a pretty heavy. <laughs> and and they were talking about they were talking about the text where I said, uh, "Your friend told you that they would do anything for you." Yes. When when it when it uh, when things were at their worst, did they? And for me. It's an, you know, I went through a long breakup and really emotional decisions about it. And I mean, breakup's a breakup. We all got sure. that story. But I, I, if I had asked myself that question, then I could have just made a clean split, which is, you know, no, they haven't shown up. I'm going to go. Yeah. They said they would do anything and they didn't. And it's not, it wasn't meant to stir resent, but resentment, but more of to be of a, to present a clean question if you're if you're in that place of purgatory, which can be just overwhelming to be at that impasse, Andrew did not like it. <laughs> and I was also like, well, listen, if you can answer yes, they did anything for you, that's going to cause the opposite of yeah, resentment. Yeah, then you're all good. Then you love them even more. Yeah. That's hilarious. Thank you. I need to get that out of my body to prove my rightness. <laughs> <laughs> so buddywakefield.com. Buddy Wakefield on Instagram. Where should people follow you the most? It's yeah, any of those is fine. It's it's all at Buddy Wakefield, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, BuddyWakefield.com, Venmo at Buddy Wakefield. <laughs> <laughs> it's just all at Buddy Wakefield. Doesn't awesome. matter. Buddy at BuddyWakefield.com to email me. Give me a couple weeks to get back to you. Perfect. Because Portugal and bakeries. And 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 great decisions. And ex excellent decision excellent, making. Perfect decision making. <laughs> yes. You know, Buddy's journey self-admittedly started with acid and somehow I feel like I feel like that entire conversation was an acid trip in and of itself. Um, man, that was one of the coolest experiences of my life to be able to talk to someone whose, whose work I've followed so closely and who's spoken to me so deeply through his art for so many years. But he doesn't spend his day thinking about decision making in the way that we do. And uh, hey, you know, maybe most people don't spend their days thinking about decision making in the way that we do but I think I can learn from everyone a little bit and and I know I learned from Buddy and he reaffirmed a few things that I, I already knew and, and one thing that he reaffirmed is to, to make the best decisions for today I've got to understand what I'm aiming at I've got to understand who my ideal self is I've got to, I've got to paint that picture, so to speak, so that I can, so that I can understand how the decisions of right now are going to move me closer to where I want to be. And, and he reaffirmed that. 
he he left me with something new though and 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 I had heard him talk about this before and that's being present buddy had a, a TED talk several years ago you can find it on YouTube it's called free air um, he references you're in this in this talk that he gave he the, the overarching theme, and I, I don't want you to feel like my summary is going to be in any way a suitable substitute for watching the full video, but his his overarching theme is be present. All you have is right now. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. The next moment isn't guaranteed. All you have is right now, right now, right now. And that's a good principle to live live life by, to to center ourselves into the moment um, when we're making decisions. It's a good way to relieve stress. It's a good way to, to appreciate what we have because nothing is guaranteed. But all the, on the other hand, in some ways, what makes us human is our ability to barter with the future. You know, the, the, more, the most human thing is to be able to barter with the future, to be able to think of tomorrow, to even conceptualize tomorrow. So living in the moment entirely and never factoring in tomorrow to our decision making can leave us in a real real lurch sometimes and so i think my takeaway is is to live for the moment but to decide for tomorrow and maybe that's the most sense that i can make of it right now not a whole lot makes sense to me in this moment and that i i all of a sudden I have this feeling that I've felt any time I've listened to a Buddy Wakefield poem, and that's that I, I can't think linear, linearly anymore. There's something that he does, and you can hear it in the way that he talks, is that he meanders and, 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 and moves and, and mazes through conversation and thought, and, and even just listening to a three-minute poem from him, somehow you get infected with that gift. And so I hope that something of what I've said just now makes sense to you. And I hope that it gives you a little piece to, to exist with and to capture and to put in your pocket and carry with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Decidedly. I hope you learned something. I know I did. If you thought our show was five-star worthy, please check us out on iTunes and give us a five-star review. It really helps out a lot, helps people find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. Check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Until next time, I'm Sanger Smith with Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast was produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.